You are listening to audio from Redeemer Church in Tomball, Texas. To find out more information about our church, visit us at makingmuchofjesus.org. You know, I, I know it kind of goes without saying, but it's always good just to say it. I love the members of our church. But there was a time where I almost beat one up. And I mean literally. This is not a metaphor. This is literal. Scotty Jinks, I don't know why you're laughing already, just the mention of his name. But if you know Scotty, you know why. Uh, I've known him since high school. He's just a great friend and a great brother. But one day, it's not that he got on my nerves, but he did almost meet my fury. A few years back, I asked Scotty if he'd watch our dog Pancake while we were out of town. I told him, here's when we're leaving. It's in a couple days. Here's a key. Here's kind of when to let her out and come by and here's how much he eats. And he agrees totally. I'll do it all. So it's the day we're leaving. And Scotty, at the time, he worked at Starbucks and he had the opening shift, which means he had to be there at 4.15 in the morning. And he wouldn't be done till around noon. So like a good friend, he decides, I don't want Pancake to wait that long to go outside. I'm just going to go by early in the morning and let her out on my way to work. So he said, I'm going to let her out at 3.45 in the morning that day. The trick is we hadn't left yet. <laughs> 3.45 strikes. Natalie, as we're laying in bed, Natalie hears the door open, hits me. Jeff, someone's in the house. I pop up, it's go time. And I just start running out of my room, running down the hall. I'm yelling and screaming, ready to hospitalize whoever is coming into my house. And as I'm yelling, nah, and I see him, oh, and he cowers back in the corner. We are, both of our adrenaline's running. I stop catching my breath. Scotty, I almost killed you. I thought you were a murderer. And he's like, I know, man, I'm sorry. I just thought you were gone. And on and on. Now we laugh about it now, but I'm sure that's seared into his memory a vision of his pastor bearing at him to attack him. And then me thinking I'm about to be attacked and then finding out it's just my friend and a church member. I don't know if you've ever had that kind of feeling where you feel I'm about to be attacked or I've got to get involved in this fight. It is a scary moment. And Moses has one of these two. Moses finally gives up arguing with God. He gives up trying to wiggle his way out of doing what God has commanded. And it's because even with his adrenal glands running at that burning bush and on his way back to Egypt, the reason he does all this is because he knows God's sovereignty propels us forward. That God's sovereignty propels us forward. Look at verse 18. So after he's done talking with God at the burning bush and he can't get out of this calling, verse 18, Moses went back to his father-in-law Jethro and said to him, please let me return to my relatives in Egypt and see if they're still living. So he takes the logical steps. I've got to tell my father-in-law where I live. I've got to tell my boss. I, I watch his sheep. I've got to go to Egypt. But look at how Moses says it. I need to go see if my family is still alive in Egypt. Is that what God called him to do? No. Did God call him to go do a wellness check on his aunts and uncles and siblings and cousins in Egypt? Not at all. And in fact, what's crazy about this is that he doesn't mention Yahweh, the Lord, at all. And even crazier, he doesn't mention the mission that he's been sent on. Doesn't mention the mission, doesn't mention God. And I sit back and read this and think, wouldn't you mention that? He doesn't mention the fact that as he's watching his sheep, a burning bush started talking to him and actually knew Moses' name, that a fire, in the midst of that fire, a voice crackled out from it. 
that this voice said, I am the Lord, I am Yahweh, and I'm calling you to go to Egypt and let the Israelites free? This just happened. How do you not mention that? Probably for the same reason a lot of us haven't told our family and friends that an uncorpsed Christ has changed our lives too. Probably for the same reason a lot of us have not been as bold and evangelistic as we ought to be. You can get into the headspace of Moses here. Am I really going to tell my father-in-law that I'm taking his daughter, I'm taking his grandkids with me to a country where we will not be welcomed and it will be dangerous? And if that's not bad enough, I'm actually going to confront the most powerful leader, most powerful man on earth and demand that he let the Israelites go. And then I'm going to tell him, I know I'm supposed to do this because a voice from a bush told me to go. You can see how difficult this is. And you can see how if he told him all this, his father-in-law would be like, no way. Oh, watch this. My, my staff can turn into a snake. I promise. You can see how this conversation, like, this is not going to go well. And I wonder how many of you, since I call to pastoral ministry, and am I really going to leave this degree plan? I'm really going to leave this hefty paycheck? I'm going to go the difficult route of being a pastor or planting a church? Or maybe you're sensing the call to God sending you and your family to the nations for missionary work. And you're going to have to tell your parents and tell your in-laws, I am taking your wife, your daughter, your grandkids to a, to a place where it's, it's difficult to live. It's difficult to be a Christian. But God said, go, so I'm going. <coughs> Beloved, don't let family dynamics usurp the call of God in your life. Don't let the awkwardness divert you from the call to make disciples and make much of Jesus wherever you are and wherever that is, whether it's going overseas or whether it's just talking to an Uber driver on a work trip. It won't be easy. That's why God says, I will help you. Revival won't always break out. That's why God says, I will help you. I am with you. Like Moses, we must submit to the sovereign one. Even in the midst of our fears, because it seems like even Moses is still afraid. If you look at verse 19, his father-in-law says, go. Now, verse 19 says, in Midian, the Lord told Moses, return to Egypt. Get going, Moses. You're still hanging around Midian. For all the men who wanted to kill you are dead. So Moses loads up his family on the donkey and they head for Egypt. Moses knows there are people who want my life from the crimes I committed while I was still there. And God says, don't worry. They're not, they're gone. Moses doesn't have to worry about someone barging in at 3.45 a.m. on their way to work to kill him or getting robbed. He doesn't have to look over his shoulder the whole time he's dealing with Pharaoh. I'm going to get arrested. Are they going to seek revenge on me? God is gently reminding Moses I'm going to take care of you. I'm with you. I know all things, trust me. And so, so listen, church, what fears do you have that keep you from being faithful to God's call to make disciples and make much of Jesus wherever you are? Is it rejection? That was one of Moses's. I'm not that articulate. That was one of Moses's too. My past, that was one of Moses's too. And you know what God's saying here? Your past isn't going to haunt you in Christ. He is with you. And the same is true for every Christian in this room. The principalities and powers that rule over this present age want you to think your past is a hindrance to you being a faithful servant of Christ. It is not because your fears are not sovereign. 
Your what ifs are not omnipotent and your assumptions aren't almighty. Submit to God's sovereign will and the sovereign God and go forward in faith, knowing he is in control and God wants to show us, look at how much I am in control. Verse 21. So the Lord instructed Moses, when you go back to Egypt, make sure you do before Pharaoh all the wonders I've put within your power, which were what? His staff thrown on the ground, a snake, hand put it in the cloak, leprous, disease, put it back in, healed. Water from the Nile poured on the ground, turned into blood. Do all those before Pharaoh. But look at what the Lord says. Know this, but I will harden his heart so that he won't let the people go. This is a big theme in Exodus. God will harden his heart. And this is a concept people hate to see and think about. But we have to know this is inescapable and really undebatable. We'll see more of this later in Exodus, but God is telling us right up front, I am in control of this situation, Moses. I'm going to harden, I'm going to dig in the heels of Pharaoh's heart so that he won't respond to any of the wonders until the final plague. God is going to make his heart even more unresponsive to God's glory. And a lot of questions arise from this. The first one is usually, how can God do such a thing? I don't like that God's doing this. But here's what you must know about this passage and about this reality. The Bible doesn't pull any punches about God's power. And frankly, the Bible is just not a respecter of our 21st century feelings. It presents God's power, God's authority, and God's sovereignty and his control over everything without any apology. Because we all have wrong views of God. Oh, I thought God was like this. I thought God was like this. And the Bible is saying, no, this is who God is. I am who I am. When God says his name is I am and I am who I am, he is saying, you cannot project onto me what you want me to be. I am who I am. He is who he is. So the Bible presents this without any apology, without any bashfulness, without any marginal parenthetical comments, without any trigger warnings. Really, the Bible is constantly destroying our wrong views of God. When our view of God is too small, the Bible blows it up and shows us how massive and how powerful God is. And and when our view of God's love is too small, the Bible shows us how massive, how grand his love is in the cross and empty tomb. And when our view of his mercy and his kindness and his authority, see the Bible is constantly saying, constantly course correcting us. This is who God really is. This is the God you must meet. And so right now he is showing us his raw power and authority put on display. He is sovereign. This is who God is. But listen, there is something bigger at work here, bigger than our feelings about God hardening Pharaoh's heart. There's something bigger at play. And and I don't know if you know this about me, but I'm a fan of the Houston Rockets. Maybe you've picked that up at some point. And I am not a fan of the Golden State Warriors. Amen. Amen. And one of the Warriors players, Steph Curry, his wife, Aisha, is opening a restaurant here in Houston at at City Center. They're near the Beltway. And it's opening in a few months or so. This restaurant hasn't even opened yet. No soft openings, no taste tests, nothing. But the Yelp page for her restaurant already has pages and pages of negative reviews. They're all negative. The food is bland. It's a choking hazard, choking hazard, choking hazard. (laughs) 
don't go. The roasted ankles are overcooked. Chef Curry's not as good as Chef Harden. And on and on and on and on. Rockets fans are leaving negative review after negative review. And is it because they don't like Aisha Curry's food? No, no one's tasted it. Is it because they don't like her? For most of them, probably not. Is it because they don't like Steph Curry? No. Something bigger. It's a battle between teams. It's a battle between cities. It's a battle between franchises. It's not just a battle of food. It is a bigger battle at work. And what's here in this verse of God saying, I am hardening Pharaoh's heart. It is more than just saying, I'm showing you that I'm going to make him not listen. It is bigger than that. This is a battle of the gods. This is a battle between Yahweh, the true and living God, and all of the little G gods of Egypt. Because to Egypt, guys, Pharaoh's heart and their theology, Pharaoh's heart, his core was all important. They believed Pharaoh's heart was the determiner of history and society. Egyptians believed that the hearts of these two gods, Ra and Horus, that they were sovereign over everything together. And they believed that Pharaoh was the incarnation of Ra and Horus. So what they have in Pharaoh is a man who they think his heart is in control over history. And then he's the incarnation of two Egyptian gods who's over culture, who's over history and society. So what you have in this verse in Exodus of Yahweh saying, I will harden his heart. He is saying, Pharaoh is not in control of history. I am. Pharaoh is not in charge of what happens in this country. I am. Pharaoh is not sovereign. I am. In fact, Pharaoh can't even control his own heart. I am the one who will control it. Ra and Horus are not sovereign. I am. This is why Exodus 7, the Lord says, the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. Uh, that I am who I am, that I am sovereign, that I am more powerful than Ra and Horus, that when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the Israelites from among them, it's exactly what we're saying. You have no rival. You have no equal. The Lord is saying all Egypt will know I have no rival, that all the gods of Egypt are no rival to me. All the gods of Egypt are no equal to me. There is no one like me. And Pharaoh will eventually submit to Yahweh, which shows us what? Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Have you submitted to God? Have you submitted to the Lord? Has, or has your pride kept you thinking you are in control of your life? You know what the Bible says, but this is what I want to do. I know what God would want me to do in my life, but this is what I want to do. Have you submitted to God? Do you view God as the one who knows the beginning and the end? Or do you view him as one who just reacts to history? Who is the alpha and the omega? Who knows when a sparrow falls to the ground? And who knows how many hairs are on your head? And see, the good news about this sovereign God is also that this is a sovereign God who says, I am pledging myself to you, that I am on your side. That if I am for you, who can be against you? That he works for our good. His promises are unthwartable. That he has no rival. That he has no equal. 
So submission to the sovereign God is what he calls you to today. And if you've never submitted to Christ, today can be the day of salvation. Today can be the day where you say, save me from my sins. I submit to your cross and your tomb and your life and your call to believe. And maybe some of us, we need to submit to the call to make disciples, to make much of Jesus, and to obey him, knowing God is serious about obedience. This is what we see in this next part. Look at verse 24. This is by far the most bizarre part of Exodus. When I started reading it this week, I thought, what in the world is going on here? Verse 24. On the trip at an overnight campsite, it happened that the Lord confronted him, Moses, and intended to put him to death. Now, I do know one thing about this verse is we have found another proof text for why people shouldn't go camping. (laughs) The Lord sought to put him to death at a campsite. No, thank you. But what's happening? God's judgment is barreling down on Moses as they're camping. Why? God's called him. God's equipped him. God's given him wonders and powers to work out. And now God's wrath and judgment is coming from Moses. How come? Because Moses was disobedient. He should have circumcised his son by now, but he hadn't. This is shocking. So God's judgment is going to land on Moses for one infraction. Not for all the times he argued with God. Not for all the times he tried to wiggle out of God's call in his life. Not all the times he argued with him at the burning bush. But this, yes. All it takes is one infraction of God's commands. And wrath barrels down. Moses disobeys. He has failed as a spiritual leader in his home. He's not leading his family to know God. So what happens? Moses' wife steps up. Look at verse 25. So Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and threw it at Moses' feet and said, you are a bridegroom of blood to me. Moses' wife, Zipporah, steps up. And I'll never forget what Paul Helbig, my Old Testament professor, mentor, and one of the key founders of Redeemer Church, he always called her Zippy the Clippy. (laughs) Zippy circumcises her son, does what Moses should have done. And you, you need to track with this. She did what Moses should have done, but did not. And I love this about Zippy. Because there is this terrible satanic theology that goes around in churches in the Bible Belt that women are always supposed to be quiet. Women are always supposed to be in the background and never do anything, even if their husbands are spiritual buffoons, not taking charge and ruining the family. Wrong. Zippy steps up and she is a woman who understands my husband is ignorant and I've got to save his life. And she does so by circumcising her son doing what the man, the husband, should have done. And then look at what happens. Verse 25. As she throws the foreskin at Moses' feet and says, you are a bridegroom of blood to me. Verse 26. So he let him alone. God relents. She throws the skin and the blood at Moses' feet. Not because she's angry. Don't read it like that. This is not a marital conflict situation. She's saving Moses' life. She obeys. Listen, she obeys what Moses should have obeyed. And if Moses would have done this, he would have had blood on him too. So she did what Moses should have done. 
And then she covers Moses in blood as if he had done it himself. Now that's why she says, now you are my husband covered in blood. And God's judgment relents. Her obeying and her applying the blood saved Moses's life. This is a foreshadow of what's going to come at the Passover, them applying the blood of the lamb to the doorpost, and then God's wrath passes over them. But it's even, there's even a brighter light being cast here, even a brighter shadow. It's a sign of the gospel. The exact same thing happens for us in the cross of Christ. We are disobedient, and someone else's obedience happened in our place and applied blood to us too. Jesus obeyed in our place, did all that we couldn't do, but we should have done. And his obedience in our place led to his blood being spilled out on a cross as blood dripped down his feet, now being applied to us by faith, applied to our disobedience, applied to our failure. And now the blood of Jesus is smeared all over us as if we were the ones who obeyed. And God now looks at us Like he looked at Moses, I see blood on you, you're covered. It's just like you obeyed. And now the father looks at us with the blood of Christ covering us and says, it's just like you obeyed. You are counted righteous. Her act of faith, her obedience credited to Moses. Jesus' life, death, resurrection, obedience, blood credited to us. See, Zipporah, she's not just a wife who saved her husband's life. She is a mirror of the gospel, of the work of Christ. Her righteous act, her applying the blood, shows us we need a righteous life on our behalf. Someone else, the blood of Christ applied to us. So have you been covered by the blood of Christ? Has your disobedience that we know we all have, has it been met with the blood of Jesus? Has your heart been changed, circumcised spiritually, sin cut off, a new life given in the blood of Christ? This is exactly what Paul tells us in Colossians 2 when he says, you were also circumcised in him with a circumcision not done with hands by putting off the body of the flesh. In the circumcision of Christ, when you were buried with him in baptism and you were raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And when you were dead in trespasses in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive with him and forgave us all of our trespasses. He erased the certificate of debt with its obligations that was against us and opposed to us and has taken it away by nailing it to the cross. Has your disobedience been taken away by being nailed to the cross of Christ? You can't obey enough to get into God's grace. Moses could not have done this. Zipporah did it on his behalf. And you cannot obey enough to get in God's grace. Someone else has to do it for you. And God's grace gets us into God's grace. What does God give to those who have squandered his grace? More grace. Jesus gets us in. To be a Christian means you've been baptized. You've been immersed into Christ. His blood applied to you like the old hymn says, there is a fount filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And when Jesus was yanked out of that tomb by his father and put right next to him in the heavenly places, you too were yanked out of your death and your sins and you were given new life in Christ. All your sins forgiven. 
Certificate of debt handled, nailed to the cross, covered in the blood of the Son. See, God cares about all of our disobedience and he's made a way for it to be taken care of. And now the blood of Christ empowers us for obedience. God sees the blood and relents from Moses. And God sees the blood of his son on you and he relents from you. And the people see the signs performed by Aaron and Moses and they worship. So when God sees, we sing. When God sees the blood, we worship. When God sees that we're, create, we're counted righteous in Christ, we sing, we worship. This is what the Israelites do at the end of the closing of this section. Moses and Aaron meet. They greet each other as brother. They, they hug. They welcome one another. He tells them, the Lord has given me the signs for you to say to the people, let's gather the elders of Israel. They gather them. They do the signs. They show them the staff turned to the snake. They show them the hand that was sick, now healed. They show them blood from the water of the Nile. And look what the people do, verse 30. Aaron repeated everything the Lord said to Moses from the burning bush. He performed the signs before the people. Verse 31, the people believed. They responded in faith. And why? When they heard that the Lord had paid attention to them. They knew God sees us. And I know there's someone in this room that needs to know the Lord has paid attention to you. He sees you. He knows what you're going through. It has not slipped past him. He has not forgotten you. And specifically, look, they see the Lord paid attention to them and had seen their misery. Some of us are going through deep misery that we have not brought to the light, but you must know the Lord sees you. And not in some judgmental way, but in a loving father way. The Lord has paid attention to you and he has seen your misery. And this is why the son walked through the Galilean region and said, come to me. All of you in your misery, you're labored, you're burdened by life. Come to me and I will give you rest. Follow me. The Lord has paid attention to us and the Lord sees your misery. He sees their wretched situation. And what's their response? They knelt low and worshiped. This is the right response to God's grace. Worship. He's paid attention to us. He's seen us in our sin and our wretched situation, and he gave us his son. And the son sees us in our wretched situation, and he says, you can have my blood. And the spirit sees us in our weakness, sees us in our struggles, sees us battling against the principalities and powers of this age, and says, I will give you power. And I will fill you with my spirit. Beloved, this is the response to his grace, to kneel low and worship. Blood applied to you, we worship. Blood from Jesus that covers all of our disobedience, empowering us for obedience now, we worship. We kneel low at the cross. We kneel low at the tomb. We kneel low at the throne, just like the saints in heaven now, worshiping Christ. He has no rival. He has no equal. And now you don't have to wonder if God's wrath is going to get you at an overnight campsite because of sin. 
Jesus took it all. But listen, Jesus does tell us, I will come like a thief in the night. And if you have not been forgiven, if you have not been covered in blood, if you don't know him, he will come like a thief in the night for judgment, for wrath. But if you do know him, if you do believe in him, he's still coming like a thief in the night. But it will be like a church member waking you up in the middle of the night. Nothing to fear. It's just a friend. Nothing to fear. It's just your friend coming to pay you a visit. Trust the sovereign Lord today. Let's pray together. Thank you for listening. To find out more information about our church, visit us at makingmuchofjesus.org.